Lady Rocketeer. Yes, I saw that. Stop surfing the internet. It's time for the show. Are we back? We're back. Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. After a long layoff, we're back again to talk about some comic book goodness. This is episode number 93. I'm Paul Spataro, and I'm here with my two buddies, Michael Bailey. Hello. And Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. And uh, as we were talking about, we haven't done a show, and I think it's been a month and a half or so, and... You know, all for one, one for all, nobody takes the blame, except I've been sitting here with my headset on for a month and a half waiting for you two, two guys to join me <laughs> and record a freaking episode. Uh, I, I don't, I, you know, there's there's no excuses. I really don't know what to say. There, you know, I, I, I can offer up a lame apology or I can just, you know, I can just honestly say that um it's all mike's fault <laughs> oh, i'm oh sorry God. i just woke up uh, you were talking <laughs> and naturally i fell asleep <laughs> touche touche no as you say it's i don't think it's anybody's fault really it's just life just kind of gets in the way you know but and it's about to get even worse for me <sighs> oh, so. no. oh no back to school dude they're extending oh, dude. hours extending our hours and it's gonna suck i said a little prayer for you the other day because my wife and i uh we we went over to uh where the hell did we go target i think it was to we were were looking for something i can't remember kids shoes or something and we happened to wander by the the back to school section and i just thought to myself jesus am i glad i don't do that shit anymore then i remembered that you still do and i was like oh poor mike (laughs) yeah it's okay. It'll even out someday. I mean, this the, one day this podcasting thing is gonna like you know take off, and I'm gonna be able to quit my job and do this full time. Yeah, that's that's my goal. Full time comic talk. Do, uh, do you at least uh, when they whack you on the hours like this? Do you at least get overtime, or do you get the your money? I mean, you don't get overtime. Uh, well, yeah, I'm hourly, so. Thankfully, if I do work overtime, I get time and a half, and, and they're giving us more hours to work with. It's not so much the long hours. I mean, they kind of suck. It's just dealing with people going back to school because parents aren't happy because they don't want to have to pay for other people's tissues and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And that teachers, stuff is ridiculous. Teachers aren't happy. Because they don't want to have to pay for their own supplies. They think the school should supply it. So, what, and because it's not like a couple years ago when, when I first started working for Office Depot, we seriously, it, it was, we had like three years worth of merchandise in the back. Like I was, it was 2008 and I was pulling notebooks out that said 2006. Because they've just been sitting. They don't do that anymore. So our limited supplies are really limited. So when we have a folder for $0.10, we really have to stick to the minimum requirement that they have to buy. And one, you get the teachers who will lay the sob story on you that they have to pay for. And I feel bad. I'm not bad-mouthing teachers. 
uh, as I was explaining to one of my associates the other day, I feel bad for teachers. I just get sick of them by about halfway through back to school because I'm so, I'm sick of hearing the sob stories. And then you got parents that are like, well, I'm buying for my church or I'm buying for my neighbor kids because they can't afford school supplies. And it's just like, you know, it's not my fault that Office Depot decided, hey, we're, you can only get 10 of these. That's not my fault. I mean, last year, I swear to God, we ran out of a folder, and I found myself surrounded by about five or six women who looked like they wanted to kill me. Well, from the parent point of view, they screw you over because, first of all, the schools don't get you the supplies, the supply list of what you need to buy until the school year is just about to begin. So every year, my wife is going crazy trying to figure out what my two kids need in, in time to actually get because if you wait until you get the list, when you go to the store, they're out of things that you need. And secondly, the list is always ridiculously unreasonable because they want you to bring in more stuff than your kid is ever going to use and put it into like a communal supply and they give it out to other kids who don't bother to buy supplies. So you actually feel like you're buying supplies for other kids, which is just crazy. Dude, I did that a grand total of one time when Scotty was little and I want to say it was like first or second grade. And the first time I went back to the school for some sort of, like, parent-teacher thing and saw him using, like, you know, rat-ass brand crayons instead of the giant, like, 109,000 crayon set from Crayola that I had bought him with the sharpener and all that, mm-hmm. I went friggin' ballistic. And I said, I'm never doing that shit again. Because you're right, that is exactly what they do, you know? The, the poor kids or welfare kids or, or, you know, just plain lazy parents kids that don't bother to buy their kids anything end up using the shit that I bought for my kid. And it's like, no, I don't think so. that That's not going to fly from now on. So, yeah, whenever whatever we get for them from now on, I make them, like, write their name on it and, you know, have headers on it. And I, pff, there's no way. I'm not doing that community crap. Uh, <laughs> I could just I could do a whole show on my beefs with back to school. Believe me. Well, and, the worst. And, the wor- know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And I, I shouldn't complain so much because all I'm doing is paying for it. My wife goes through the headaches of going to the stores and buying it all. She's great with taking care of that. So I really shouldn't complain so much. But when that credit card bill comes and she says, "Oh yeah, I bought some school supplies," it's like, you know, I, it feels like she furnished the house uh, with the money it cost for some school supplies. I keep meaning every year the same thing happens, and I never do it. But every year I keep meaning to call my parents and find out, did did we go through this shit when I went to school? Because I can't see my father allowing that kind of expense when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure that we didn't go through this. But again, it could just be, you know, I, I just wasn't aware of it going on. But I, every year I'm amazed when those lists come out and, and the expense and everything. And it just it, it gets my blood to boiling because I'm going, what what the hell am I paying taxes for, you know, to the school and everything else if I still end up having to, you know, fork out hundreds of dollars every year to, to send the kids to school? I just there's there's a there's a disconnect somewhere that I'm just not understanding. I think it's all a scam. But. <laughs> Somebody's selling uh, selling those good crayons on the back of the school. Yeah, exactly. There's like a, a crayon black market going on, you know, behind the school grounds or something. I I don't know what the hell is. Here's, here's my theory: Mike Bailey sells you those those crayons for whatever ten bucks. Ten bucks. You give them to the school. 
They give your kid the cheap dollar store crayons. They sell the crayons back to Mike Bailey out of the back door for $5, and then he resells them to you for 10 again. That son of a bitch. I don't mean to start any friction between you two guys, but I'm thinking that's what's happening. It's been festering for a long time anyway. I was about to say, Scott and I are like one conversation away from never speaking to each other again. All over crayons. Oh, I love it could be crayons. It could be something else, Scott. It's gonna, it's gonna make, <laughs> it's gonna make the ASM classic uh, feud look like a freaking Sunday school picnic. Is oh, what it's gonna man. do. But no, I really was thinking about you, Mike, because you know the 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 number one thing for me that was always ahead. Because see, when I nine, you know, most of the years of, I mean, my years, most of the months of the year, I loved. You know my job being a being a toy department manager with uh, with Target. You know during that time that I was with them, but the time that I hated it, absolutely hated it, was back to school because it wasn't just the toy department; it was the toys and seasonal department. And I could deal with the other seasons. I could deal with Christmas. I can deal with Halloween and all the other seasons. But back to school was a major pain in the ass, and it was mostly because you take forever to set the damn thing up. And then it takes a grand total of the store being open five minutes for them to just totally destroy it. So for the entire rest of the season, every woman on earth would come in and bitch, I can't find anything. It's so messy in here. Why don't they clean this out? Why don't they organize it? And every one of them, I had to actually hold myself back from really doing some serious calculations to figure out if I could drag this bitch back to the back room and stuff her in the bailer before I got caught, you know? Because it just would infuriate me. It's like, do you hear yourself? You sound like an asshole. Why would I spend the rest of my life cleaning up after every idiot on earth that's going to wander into this department and screw it all up for, you know, there's no payoff to that whatsoever. I would help them set the set when it was time for back to school. And I didn't touch that shit again until the end of the season when it was time to throw it all in a box and send it back to the company because there is absolutely nothing in it for me to pick it up and, and keep it organized. You know what I mean? You, you are literally battling the rest of human civilization that's coming in there with no other purpose than to just mess up your display. And I was like, nope, I'm I'm done with with battles, uh, you know, that are completely futile. And that's a major one right there. I mean, do you deal with that where you're at? I'm sure you do. Oh, we have to clean it up all the time. We have to keep it neat and organized at all times. Oops. When there are downtimes, we have to immediately straighten up. Screw that. I would keep the shit off the floor, and that's as far as I went. Uh, there was no way I was going to spend tons of time reorganizing everything like at the end of the day or even during the course of the day that right there is the definition of insanity to me because no, we don't we don't have much of a choice i mean that's that's just how that's just how we're set up basically <laughs> i mean we we have to i mean we we it's it's a little more organized than in previous years i'll give it that uh i did let the geek flag fly uh, when when I was looking over the setup and noticed that they didn't have a hyphen in the Spider-Man notebook tag. Uh, that bugged <laughs> the crap out of me. Um, but, no, it's basically, you know, we have, like, the, the setups, and then 
you know, people come in, the the wave subsides, and you immediately have to restock so that when the next wave comes through, they can get at it. It's constantly cleaning. It's constantly recovering. Uh, and you just have to keep that up. Because if you don't, at the end of the night, the night shift is stuck having to clean up the entire store. Right. All right, Mike, I'm giving you credit here. Because I was just sitting here saying, okay... How do we steer this back to comics? Oh, hey, somebody, you like that? Somebody who's downloading back to the bins <laughs> is going to really be saying, who gives two craps about buying school supplies? No, they're going to love this. Thank you. No, no, well, 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 I almost made it sound like I knew what I was doing, didn't it? Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> it was all, all seemed calculated. I'll, I'll tell you right now, 10 bucks says that that ends up being the most talked about part of this whole episode you oh, watch. Yeah, you're, you're going to have teachers bitching at me because I insulted them. You're going to have parents agreeing with me. You're going to have mothers talking about how, you know, of all the mothers, you know, the, not the mothers, the mothers, as uh, David Addison once said <laughs> on um, Moonlighting. But, um, yeah, it, it, you'd be surprised what people latch on to. I mean, I... It's, Scott and I both know that offhanded comments can swamp a show's email. Mm-hmm. And then you spend mm-hmm. three weeks talking about it. And then you get to the point where you're like, why the hell are we talking about this in the first place? So, now, speaking of which, uh, have we got it? Have we had access to email? Uh, some time ago, when we were still on our roll and, uh, and operating on a weekly basis, I went in... And uh, and and tackled the monumental task of weeding all of the uh, the spam and crap and everything else out of our email. All set to go with that, and then we had our lapse. So at the moment, I don't know what the state of our inbox is, but uh, I will uh, I will go through it again if uh, if you guys want to start making that a regular uh, feature of the show, which I think we should do. Honestly, I agree I'd as well. Like to. I'd like to know what people think, so I would definitely be interested in. No, you don't. Yeah, it's a scary, <laughs> scary place. I do. But uh, you know, I may. I, I, right now, I'm interested in hearing what they think. Once I find out what they think, I may change my mind on it. But for now, I'm interested. Well, I will let you know, in all seriousness, that that the personal feedback that I have gotten from people is, is that they love the format change, they they love your addition to the show, and uh, and things are fine. I have not heard any complaints. You know, I, I haven't heard anybody say you know a- anything negative about the show at all. So ev- everything seems to be very positive. They they like the format shakeup. So uh, yeah, good on you. Glad to hear all of that. <laughs> so, uh, just to go trying to try to get us back on target here, today we are doing a special Amazing Spider-Man episode uh-huh. to tag along with Michael Bailey's 50th anniversary special that he finished about a month ago, <laughs> or a month and a half ago, or whatever that. Oh, was. it's still going on. I've got a, I've got two in the can that are Spider-Man related. I got two more planned, so it's going to be fun. Is mine yeah. one of those? Um. I do have to. We do have to get a, uh, get together on that. Yes, we do. Okay. I'm just curious. Definitely. I was I was just wondering uh, if that no. Was I, st- I still want to do that. I really okay. do. Cool. Scott, have you uh, gone to see the movie yet? I have not, and and I got to be honest. I don't. I probably won't. I mean, I'm sure that I'll rent it when it comes out on on uh, DVD or whatever. But uh, it was never a uh, a, a must see anyway. Well, and- I can. 
tell you then, because Mike and I already went through this, that uh, I guess I'm the only one of the three of us who's seen it. Uh-huh. Uh, so I can give you the... I'll give you... The, I was, as I was saying to Mike, I'll do a spoiler-free quick synopsis on it. Uh-huh. Uh, I ended up going... I this, this was a movie that I was not necessarily thinking, oh, I have to see this right away. And then one of my friends said he was going to go to the midnight show with his 14-year-old and said, you know, would you and Matthew like to go to the uh, show as well? And I asked my son, and he wanted to go. And then the next thing I knew, my daughter wanted to go. And then the next thing I knew, my 19-year-old nephew was coming as well. So six of us ended up going to see it. Of the six of us, five of us enjoyed it. Uh, my buddy who started the whole thing did not. Uh, I would describe it as a good movie, but not great. And I think some of the sensibilities are unfortunately influenced by the darkness of the Chris Nolan movies. And I think that is what you will find to be the turnoff on it. Uh, uh, certain things about it I really liked. I thought some of the actors that were cast were really good for the roles. Uh, I thought the kid who played Peter Parker was good. I didn't like some things about the way the role was written, so I think if it had been written better, he would have been better. Uh, it was, he was a little too angsty. Uh, you know, I know Peter Parker's supposed to have the bad luck and all, but he isn't supposed to be a whiner. Uh, I liked Gwen Stacy. I really liked Dennis Leary as Captain Stacy. I kind of like the idea of a teenage girl's father not being 90 years old. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, even in, in Spider-Man 3, when they, they put Gwen Stacy and a father in, they had uh, James Cromwell play Captain Stacy. He's got to be 70 if he's a day. You know, your your average 17-year-old has a, has a father who's going to be somewhere between 45 and 55, I would imagine. And you know, Dennis Leary fits that bill. Uh, and, he, and he played the part really, really well. The kid who played Flash Thompson was so much more Flash Thompson than the... Uh, than the previous movies. Uh, I liked the lizard's story. Uh, I would have liked it if the CGI gave him a snout. You know, he kind of had a round head. Uh, he speaks, which I like. Uh, oh, cool. You know, he, there is a moment where they show him in the lab coat, which I also enjoy. Uh, but o- overall, I, I thought it was enjoyable, but not a great movie. You know, I put it on, on a level with... Uh, I don't know. You know what? I, I know you really enjoy it, but I, I kind of found, I would say, to me, it would be the equivalent of Iron Man 2. Hmm. Which I, I liked I liked Iron Man a lot more than I liked Iron Man 2, even though I enjoyed Iron Man 2. So, you know, just probably like three stars out of five. It's not bad. And, no, it wasn't bad. Like I said, it was good, but not great. And it was good, but not terrible. You know, it was in the middle somewhere. Uh, they had, you know, the post-movie mid-credit scene, and that was kind of a disappointment because it didn't, it didn't leave me like in a situation where I said, oh, I can't wait for the next one. Which that's what that that scene is supposed to do, I think. Does it set up the next villain? Well, I'm suspecting that the next villain is going to be the Green Goblin. Uh, and they do mention Norman Osborn throughout. You know, the Lizard is, or Kurt Connor is working for Oscorp. 
So I suspect that they're going to go to the Green Goblin on the next one. Uh, but I don't even know that for a fact. It could be, you know, they did talk about it being a trilogy, so it could be that the Green Goblin would be the third one. If they do the Goblin, I'm hoping that they'll go for the more traditional costume instead of what they did in the uh, the first movie, because that was the biggest weakness to that movie was that metal Power Ranger mask. Right. Then the action sucked, but uh... I did, I didn't think it sucked. I, I I I don't know. I would I would respectfully disagree with you on that i i I was never crazy about toby Maguire as spider-man i don't know he just didn't fit my vision of peter parker and even though i can't stand well not can't stand even though i don't like the chris nolan uh you know batman has to do the deep gravelly voice when he's batman i don't like the fact that like when toby Maguire puts on the mask his voice is exactly the same as when he doesn't have the mask Somebody, you know, when he meets Mary Jane, how does she not know it's him? Right. I had that thought during the scene where uh, where he smashes Eddie Brock's camera in the third movie. He says, see it, chump. And I'm thinking, that's Peter Parker's voice, dude. You didn't even modulate it or, or deepen it or anything. So, yeah. Yeah, I always kind of liked. Uh, well, you have it at the beginning of uh, Comics Monthly Monday, where like in the cartoon, where it's this is a job for Superman. Right. <laughs> you know, he was got a kick out of that. Uh, or even even in the in the Spider-Man cartoon from the '60s, they have a you know very different voice for Spider-Man than they do for Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that's always the way it should have been. Absolutely, I agree. But like I said, good but not great. Uh, I. I I would recommend seeing it, but I wouldn't recommend rushing out to see it. Uh, if, if you went, you know, if you find seeing it on video, I, I don't think you're going to miss anything. That was the big thing is I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I, it might be different if it was connected. You know, if, if somehow they had managed to connect it to this this larger Marvel project that's going on with the, the Avengers and the related movies, then I, I might have felt more of a need. But at this point, I don't. It feels easily dismissed to me, you know, or easily delayed. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I wouldn't dismiss it totally, but delayed, I don't think is a big deal. Uh, what I heard that they were doing, and I don't know if this is reality or just a rumor, but they had been negotiating, and I don't see why this negotiation should have taken all that long. Uh, but what they talked about doing apparently was in the Avengers movie when they showed the skyline having the Oscorp tower in the background. Right, yeah. And in the Spider-Man movie having the Stark tower in the background. And that would have been just the only crossover part of it. Which to me seems like, you know, why not? But apparently they they couldn't, you know, I I, I don't know why it would be such a big deal to get an agreement to just do that. Yeah, it's the politics. Yeah, it's probably debating, you know, videos. when they show it and how they show it, and, and you know how long, how many seconds the camera stays on it, and all sorts of crap like that. Instead of just saying, "Yeah, fine, show the Oscorp tower." Yeah, I'm I'm mystified by that myself. The only thing I can think of is that I know that that Disney does eventually want to get all of their properties back in house. So I don't think that they would ever do anything to actively sabotage any of the the Marvel projects that aren't in-house. But at the same rate, there may be a policy to not exactly help them along either. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that, that's the only thing that makes any sense to me. 
Well, uh, interesting. They had a, an ep- the you know the Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon. They have an episode which in, which Spider Man is in. So it's almost like they're cross promoting it anyway. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how that works when it comes to because that's the funny thing is that depending on what the medium is and, and that sort of thing is is how they can handle these things because they can handle the the movie characters one way they can handle the the characters you know in in comics or TV in another way they can handle them you know when it comes to the theme parks in another way because that that's still one of the the oddest things to me of all is that you know here they they own marvel now and can't use them here in orlando it's just that's so utterly strange and bizarre that it's you know it's almost laughable in its in its absurdity but you know it's it's part of a pre-existing deal that uh I don't know if all the specifics or not. I don't know all the specifics of it. I just know it's it's very strange. Well, except to the extent that a, a moviegoer might only have you know one movie in him. He says, you know, I'm going to go to the movies once and that's it, and goes to see Spider-Man instead of the Avengers or some other Disney property. Except in that instance, uh, I don't see where it harms Disney in any way for the Spider-Man movie to do well. Uh, even though they're not the production house that's making it. Because, first of all, I'm sure that the contract that they have for the rights to Spider-Man gives them a certain percentage of the box office gross anyway. And secondly, it's just creating greater awareness and exposure to their characters. So, I think they they win-win. The only time they lose in the deal is if there's a theater-goer who is only going to go see one movie and choose a Spider-Man over the Avengers. But other than that, I think they win no matter how you slice it. Yeah, I, th- I, agree I think with that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it. Uh, the only thing I can think of, and again, I uh, like, I, like I said, I don't think they're they would ever actively sabotage anything. Um, but the only the only thing that makes any sense to me is that you know, no matter how big that percentage is, if unless it's a hundred percent, you know, it's it's it's. I'm sure that they would eventually want to get everything back in house, but I don't know. I, I really, I'm, I'm, I remain mystified by them not being able to work something out to to cross pollinate those two franchises. It, it, that does seem like kind of a no brainer to me. But I am hearing that the rights to the Fantastic Four, if they don't make something very soon, are going to revert back to them. Oh, they announced everything at San Diego. There's a new film. They announced a director, so oh, they're going ahead go. with that. Wow. I was thinking that if they went with Thanos for the Avengers movie, and if they got the rights to the Fantastic Four back, the Silver Surfer might have been a good character in the Avengers movie, but I guess not. Well, what is it? Do you know what it's going to be, Mike? Is it going to be in-house Disney, or is it still through? Uh, it's still it, through Fox. Fox. Uh, it's still through Fox. That's a shame. Are they, re- they rebooting it totally? Uh, they going Probably. The same... It sounds like they are. Hmm. I guess you've got to keep an open mind and wait. I know last year I, I had no expectations at all for X-Men First Class, and I loved that movie, so you yeah. never know. Yeah, me too. That was the same. 
Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, I've got I've got you know big faith with with the Marvel movies. You know, I, I I'm happy with with most everything they're putting out, even even the ones that are coming out and uh, and not exact exactly capturing the spotlight or you know setting the world on fire have been you know watchable and decent because I I just recently watched uh, Ghost Rider two. And expected, fully expected to see this just god-awful abomination. And it's not a good movie, don't get me wrong. It is not a masterpiece. But, I mean, if you want to kill 90 minutes and have a couple of good chuckles and a couple of, ooh, that was kind of cool moments, then, you know, it's it's worth a peek. But, uh, yeah, don't go into it expecting, you know, Gone with the Wind either. But it was all right. I haven't seen it yet. But the interesting review I heard recently, somebody said something to the effect of, you can make a cheesy Ghost Rider movie. You can make a Ghost Rider movie with a stupid story. You can make a Ghost Rider movie with bad acting. But the one thing you can't do, the one sin you can't commit, is the one that they did, is they made a boring Ghost Rider movie. It's a little slow, yeah. Well, the, the problem with it is is that it's very obvious that this is sequel on the cheap, and it feels that way because everything is saved for the the grand finale which is fairly grand you know i'll give them that but yeah it, it does get a little sleepy in some parts but it does it has some cool things working for it too probably the the biggest one that was a complete you know it just caught me completely off guard it, it came right out of the blue was uh Christopher Lambert is in it. And I was like, holy shit, dude. I thought he retired because <laughs> I had read something about his eyesight went and I thought he was done with acting. So to see him in anything was kind of surprising. He's, he's wasted in the movie, you know, wa- uh, as far as potential, I mean. Um, but he's there. And I thought that was kind of cool. And there's a part where, uh, where Blaze... I I don't want to spoil anything, but basically, I didn't realize <laughs> that he could, um, he could, uh, I don't even know the term. He could like ghost rider eyes any vehicle. I didn't realize that. I thought it was just the motorcycle. So basically, if he gets behind the wheel of any piece of motorized machinery, he can turn it into a vehicle. There, there's a pretty awesome effect sequence in the movie where he gets into a massive piece of earth mover machinery and turns it into a ghost rider vehicle. That was pretty freaking epic. So yeah, I mean, I'll forgive the, uh, the slower and more boring parts of the movie for that part of it, because the, the special effects during that one sequence were, were really top notch. And you know, the, the grand finale is very, very road warrior, which I got a kick out of, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something again, like, you know, to rush right out and rent, but uh, you know, if you if you happen to stumble across it and you know it's in the red box or whatever, you go. I wonder if this is any good. Eh, you know, if you got nothing better to do on a Friday night or something, then there you go. You know, give it a give it a dollar rent. It's a it's a dollar rent, that's for sure. Don't don't spend serious money on it because Nick Cage looks uh, he looks bored actually. I just spent twenty five dollars on the DV. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> I was just gonna say twenty five dollars. What are you insane? Yeah, not no, at I all. Think, uh, That'll be one should, of, huh? I was gonna say I think we should probably get into our issues because we're gonna be running long. Oh yes. Well, I'm uh, uh, well, you know, I'm a little depressed. 
and uh, not those issues. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> that's not my fault. You weren't clear. People. But uh, before we do so, I think uh, maybe we take a one-minute break. That sounds good. Deacon and Geek is a podcast for the geek and everyone. Please join your hosts, Peregrine and D-Man, each week as they discuss all the things that geek guys love to talk about from the sci-fi, fantasy, and comic genres. For movies, TVs, comics, novels, and games, seek out Definitive Geek. Available on iTunes or at DefinitiveGeek.Podomatic.com. Hey folks, it's Maury Clawhammer here, and I personally guarantee that Two True Freaks is always hot, and it's always topless, okay? And it's available 24 hours a day on the internets. Get your freaks on! TwoTrueFreaks.Libson.com Alrighty, folks. And uh, since we are, well, let's face it, we will take advantage of any kind of tie-in to maybe get some new listeners or increase the listener base, we thought it would be fun to do a uh, Spider-Man-related episode of this show to kind of coincide with the uh, release of Amazing Spider-Man. And yeah, we're a couple weeks late, but we thought it would be fun to look at, I don't know, what you want to call them, anniversary issues? Anniversary issues. Yeah. Uh, would be good. best. And we're going to start with Scott. Ooh. All right. <laughs> you caught me off guard here. <clears throat> Let me bring my notes up. Well, first off, uh, for my choice for this, I want to give uh, big, big thanks and shout outs to my very good pal, Andy Leyland. Who I know that this is uh, as he, if if he listens to this, it's going to catch him completely off guard because he's completely unwitting ab- uh, about this or unwitting accomplice. But he provided the inspiration for my choice uh, because of his coverage of uh, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number fifty-eight on uh, on his show, Hey Kids Comics, during his Spider-Man month. It just got me to thinking about. My personal history with uh, with Spider Man, um, you know, of course, I, I kind of grew up with Spider Man. I knew who Spider Man was and all that, you know, from the Electric Company and different things. Uh, uh, Spider Man and his amazing friends, that sort of thing. But my comic reading of Spider Man was very, very sporadic when I was a kid. I, I didn't regularly follow him. Well, that all changed when. Um, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 59 came out. I don't know what it was about that particular issue other than there was just something about Bob Wyasek's cover on that. It's uh, If you guys are familiar with the cover, it shows Spider-Man kind of dangling down the, the cover. And it's a mostly all green background. And you've got these three mystery figures kind of standing in shadow at the bottom, and they're all saying, we want Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. And there's just something about that, I guess, must have made me pick it up and, and, and you know buy it off the stands. It was just kind of an odd place to jump in, but strangely, it was actually the beginning of a, of a new and fresh story. And uh, I just want to quickly recap that story, because it is basically part one of the, of the issue that I'm going to get into. So that story, um, it begins with this uh, prima donna narrator of an In Search Of style documentary show demanding fresh new footage of our hero in action and the film crew team consisting of a guy named Jack and his assistant, a guy named Marty Blank, setting off for New York City to acquire this footage. 
Once there, Marty directs their helicopter pilot to fly around well-known Spider-Man hotspots until they spy Spider-Man swinging by. So the pilot of the helicopter, he pursues Spider-Man while in the back... Marty Blank dons a weird costume, leaps out of the chopper to attack Spider-Man, and shouts, the Gibbon lives again. (laughs) Well, Spider-Man, you know, he makes quick work of the Gibbon, going so far as to knock him out with one punch. But it's while Spider-Man is checking on the Gibbon to make sure that he didn't use too much force while taking him down that Spider-Man's real troubles begin. For while these two guys were fighting... This guy, Abner Jenkins, was plotting and planning, watching and waiting until now, armed with a swanky, redesigned and upgraded battle suit, pre-programmed with all of Spider-Man's fighting moves, he collapses a brick wall on the uh, spectacular Spider-Man just as he is struggling to move Gibbon out of harm's way. So we end that issue, number 59, with a stunned and injured Spidey finding himself facing the new and improved Beetle. And so the issue that I've chosen for this uh, look at Spider-Man anniversary issues is actually Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man number 60, which was the fifth anniversary special for this title. And this was the uh, cover dated uh, November 1981 issue. It was actually on the stands about mid-August. Cover price was 75 cents, which was rather a lot in those days, but this is a uh, special double-sized issue, as it uh, tells us right here on the cover. Cover is by none other than Frank Miller, and, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest Miller fan in the world, but I actually dig this. Now, I'm perfectly willing to cop to the fact that it's probably just some serious nostalgic feelings working here, but I like the cover. It's very much Dark Knight, but of course this predates Dark, you know, Miller's Dark Knight Returns by a good number of years. But it's very similar. It's a very, very beefy Spider-Man uh, doing like a Dark Knight jump over this uh, very, very illuminated um, Gotham-looking city beneath him. It's it's pretty cool. It's typical Miller, but it's still a really good cover. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Inside, uh, the credits read uh, Roger Stern and, and, yeah, I can't talk tonight. Roger Stern, Ed Hannigan, and Jim Mooney are the storytellers. Diana Albers is the letterer. Jim, I don't know how you pronounce this guy's name, Russos, I guess, is the colorist. Tom DeFalco, editor, Jim Shooter, Grand Vizier. And I have always loved the name of this issue the name of this story it is simply entitled beetlemania and i i got a real kick out of that because uh when i was a kid beetlemania was hyped to high heaven on uh on channel 11 tv whenever they would uh, go on tour and things like that so i got a kick out of that so as this story begins you know this issue begins inexplicably and i and somewhere in upstate maine i can just hear kathy bates screaming about this fact spider-man is free of that collapsed wall. Now, at the end of the last issue, he was under a wall. This one starts not under the wall anymore. How did he get out of the cocky-doody car? We don't know. Anyway, he's <laughs> running for his life from the uh, Beatles' stinger blast while in the background the gibbon wakes. Spider-Man, you know, he's all woozy and hurt, but he tries to pull his shit together lest he be fried by, you know, the Beatle who's chasing him all over the place with these finger blasts. 
Beetle is really laying it on, and Spidey is, uh, he, well, he's barely keeping one step ahead of him, thanks pretty much solely to his spider sense. The Gibbon shakes off his grogginess, and seeing the situation, he begins to really regret what he's done. He doesn't honestly hate or even seriously dislike Spider-Man, and he feels bad about instigating this turn of events for the web-slinger. He even tries to help Spidey out, but just ends up getting in the way, causing Spider-Man to take a pretty serious zapping from the beetle. Realizing that he can't win this round, Spider-Man reluctantly ducks down a street work crew's sewer pipe and flees the fight. Beetle, unable to pursue our hero underground thanks to his suit, figures that if Spider-Man would risk his life to save the Gibbon twice already, then maybe the Ape-Man would be a good bait for luring Spider-Man into a rematch. So he snaps up the Gibbon, and then he takes off. Spider-Man, meanwhile, makes his way to the locker's room, uh, excuse me, the men's locker room, rather, at uh, ESU, where he showers and washes his costume, having assured his privacy with some well-placed webbing over the door. This webbing, you know, this closed door, really pisses off this guy, uh, Coach Barnstorm, uh, when it, he, you know, he, this guy comes around to check on who's using the facilities, he finds this door, uh, he assumes it's locked, and he and Peter end up having this little go-around between the two of them, and it's made very, very clear that these two guys do not like each other. Out on the grounds of the school, Peter, uh, Pete stumbles across this student, Greg Salinger, who's looking very down on his luck and everything, and they have this short and kind of weird conversation. Now, I had to look this guy up because I didn't remember this guy at all. And uh, you know, just for my own curiosity, I don't usually like to jump ahead in the narrative, but just for my own curiosity, I had to look this guy up because I suspected that he was Hydra Man. Well, he's not. Anyway, afterwards, uh, Pete happens across his sort of on-again, off-again love interest of this time period, a uh, uh, pretty blonde girl named deb whitman and she invites him back to her place for dinner well unfortunately for pete any thoughts of getting any spider nookie are quickly dashed when they arrive back at her place and they find biff tannen i i mean biff rifkin already there and watching tv in deb's living room so pete sits down with biff who he secretly he can't stand the guy and there is an amusing conversation about the wonders of her awesome new 25-inch 1981 model television <laughs> set, which I got a real kick out of. And, of course, along comes this news story on the TV about the Beatles' fight with Spider-Man, uh, the Beatle kidnapping the Gibbon, and then his challenge to our hero to meet him at such-and-such such location, or the monkey gets it. So after a few quick, lame excuses later, Spider-Man is on the scene and battling the Beetle at the location that uh, the Beetle had already pre-rigged for a tussle with Spider-Man. He actually set this up quite a while ago, and now this uh, all this pre-planning has paid off because he can change the environment to suit the needs of the battle. And the battle doesn't go well for Spider-Man as he and the Beetle are pretty fairly matched now thanks to Beetle's new suit, and worse... Spider-Man is severely handicapped by both the Beatles' foreknowledge of his fighting moves and the presence of the nearby and shackled Gibbon that, uh, that the Beatles kind of using as a human shield type of deal. Spider-Man keeps trying to free the Gibbon, but that just leaves him open to attack. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, the Newshawks that are all over the scene 
they're mystified by this strange buzzing interference that is blocking their signals to their you know back to their respective news stations so they can't they basically can't report the news while this is going on the bug and uh, the spider continue to tussle. The gibbon finally gets free. And just when things seem like they just might be all over for our hero, because the beetle raises him over his head, intent on literally ripping him in two, Spidey just simply reaches down and snaps off one of the villain's antennae. This causes the beetle's battle suit to go all piss-wacky crazy, stops the radio interference that's blocking the newsman from reporting the story, it allows uh, them to start filming the fight, finally, and Spider-Man takes the opportunity to clock the bad guy, but good. Uh, but with this, Spider-Man is spent. He's exhausted, he's hurting, and he tries to just crawl away from the fight to go lick his wounds, unaware that behind him the beetle isn't so hurt as he thought he was. But before the, uh, the beetle can really stand up and, and fire off any sort of blast or anything, potentially maybe even killing Spider-Man, the gibbon charges in and it's given to the rescue. So Spider-Man slinks away and thanks to the very uh, you know last minute of the fight style of news footage, the gibbon is actually proclaimed by the news as the hero of the day whilst... In the last two panels of the story, Peter Parker pulls a David Banner, walking off all slump-shouldered while overhearing derogatory crowd remarks about that overrated bum, Spider-Man. <laughs> now, this uh, this is my personal golden age of Spider-Man. You know, other people may be fond of... Uh, or, you know, have fond feelings for, say, like Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane Watson. For me, I have those feelings for Deb Whitman. I know today she's kind of almost a forgotten character, but this is where I kind of jumped into the narrative. So I really like that character. Um, now, isn't Deb Whitman kind of batshit crazy, though? Mm, sort of. <laughs> the, the problem with Deb, and I, I think she's been kind of mischaracterized over the years, um... Is that, you know, exactly that, that, like she was crazy or something. The problem was, and I'm not sure if it's happened yet in this, I don't think it has, but at some point she starts to figure out that there's something more to Peter Parker, there's something going on with him that all isn't as it seems. And she starts to piece the puzzle together of his other life. I think, if I'm not mistaken, she actually... I think she stumbles across him in mid-change at one point, and I don't think he's aware of it. Like, she sees him in the middle of a transformation, either f into Spider-Man or from Spider-Man back to Pete, something like that. And it sets up something, because she's, like, she's very mousy, she's not very assertive, she's not very self-sure it starts to kind of drive her a little bit crazy, this this worry and this fret over, you know, the whole Peter Parker Spider-Man thing. That finally culminates in basically her last appearance where, where Peter comes there to her as Spider-Man, reveals his identity to her, and supposedly that snaps her out of it. You know, where... where She's like, you know, thank you for, for snapping me out of my psychosis, basically. That that story, I'm not sure really works, I, but I'd have to go back and look at it again. It's been a long, long time since I've read that one. And to the best of my knowledge, that was the last we saw of her up until uh, Civil War era Spider-Man, 
where she came back with supposedly she'd written like a tell all book and that I have to yep. be honest. I wasn't, I was not crazy of the way that she was portrayed when she came back. She was portrayed very much counter character in the, to the way she was here. She here. She was, I always took her to be kind of sweet and innocent. And I actually felt a little bit bad about the way that Peter treated her. I kind of felt like he treated her like shit, you know, like, and he even admits that I, I'm not sure if it's in this issue or the prior one, but there was a point where he even admitted that he he realized fully well that he wasn't really treating Deb very well, that he should treat her better, and that's why she had gone. Well, basically, that's how she wound up in the arms of of Biff Rifkin, who is he's just an asshole. But at least he's nicer to her than Peter is, and she. There's a moment in one of these two books where where she makes that comment that she likes Peter better, but Peter treats her like crap, so she's going to stay with Biff type of thing. Um, when she came back, she was just written as like this stone cold bitch that you know was just you know looking to make some money off of, of Peter's troubles after he revealed himself to be Spider-Man to the public, and I, I just didn't like that characterization. It just didn't seem like her. Um, the probably the biggest note on this for me is that see this story really really works for me and really spoke to me because I I didn't know and I was completely unaware that the Gibbon and the Beetle are supposed to be lame ass villains. I didn't get that from this story. I think it speaks very highly of Roger Stern as a writer that I didn't ever get that from this story. I saw the, you know, the Gibbon as a, as a really interesting character looking for a, a, a chance at redemption, you know, a, a second chance to be somebody. And now, you, I, I'm sorry. I was going to say, are you familiar with the introduction stories of Gibbon before this one? I am now, but at this point, you know, I was what, 13 when this came out. So I, I wasn't then I am now. Um, but I still like him because this is where I met him first. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can see where he became a ridiculous character. But in this, he's handled straight. And I really, really like that. And even more is the Beetle. The Beetle, to me, never has been a laughable character. Even during the point when he was a laughable character. Because this is where I met him. And in this story, he's a badass that almost takes out Spider-Man. So I've always looked at him that way, and I was really happy when he became a part of um, the Thunderbolts because the Thunderbolts treated him that way. They treated mm -hmm. him like he was a serious. He was basically he was evil Iron Man, and that's what I really liked about you know his character. Um, but in the original introduction of the Gibbon, they kind of presented him as a laughable character. You know, he he's basically a mutant with Gibbon powers. Uh, right. And uh, well, well I, what I found amusing in that story is. Uh, he he comes jumping out at Spider-Man, and well, actually, he meets Spider-Man first. Then he develops his Gibbon costume, and he jumps out at him. And instead of saying, "Hey, there's a guy in a giant monkey costume," there's a guy in a giant ape costume, <laughs> there's a guy in a Gibbon costume, because that's the first thing that's going to come to your mind. Hey, isn't that a Gibbon? You're going to think of like which species of, of ape it is. <laughs> uh, but he he like offers to be Spider-Man's partner, and Spider-Man laughs at him. And basically, you know, they tussle a little bit and Spider-Man humiliates him. And then uh, Craven the Hunter gives him some sort of uh, potion that, you know, not only increases his power, but, like, increases his rage and sends him off after Spider-Man. But, you know, like, right from the start, I mean, Spider-Man laughs at him when he talks about being his partner. And he was kind of presented as a laughable character. 
See, I I have come to realize that this was actually one of one of Burn or not Burn, excuse me, Stern's rather one of Stern's, um, both kind of one of his stock tricks, but also one of his real strengths as a comic book writer was his ability to take obscure or even sometimes laughable characters and give them new life. And you know, I was completely unaware of anything like that when I discovered this issue as a kid. I, I've since seen that demonstrated a good number of times, you know, as I've followed him from title to title. But this, you know, this was my first taste of that. I just think he did a really good job with that because, you know, to this day, I like the Gibbon. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah, he probably is a pretty silly character, but I got a real kick out of him because I liked the way he was handled in this. He feels very real. You know, in this arc, he's basically, he's just, you know, at the beginning of the story, he, he's just, he's working as an assistant to this, this camera crew guy. And he just seems like a normal dude. And then it's, it's later in the story where he exhibits, you know, super strength and everything. You realize, okay, there's a little bit more to him. But the story, you know, his backstory is very slowly revealed that you realize that he's not, he, he's not your typical Spider-Man villain because he doesn't hate, he doesn't, actually doesn't really feel anything for Spider-Man at all other than he, do, he just doesn't want to be mocked and laughed at anymore. And he blames Spider-Man for his, his feelings of inadequacy. And, but you, even through the course of the story, you never get the feeling that he wanted to, to hurt or kill Spider-Man. He just basically wanted to show, look, I, I, I'm just as valid as you are. And, and I really like that. And I like that he has, uh, you know, once he realizes that, you know, his actions set Spider-Man up to potentially get killed by the Beatle, he has a complete change of heart. He actually comes to Spider-Man's defense and, and at you know, at the end of the story actually saves the day. I like that. I, I, I just think he's a, he's, he's a very sympathetic character that, that shows a lot of heart in the story. He's not just, you know, your typical... Uh, super villain, you're ranting and raving, and I must kill Spider-Man. This guy has has real feelings and motivations that don't come across with a lot of other, you know, very cardboard, cutout supervillains. And I, I like that. I think that's really cool. I have no idea where he went beyond this story. I, I know I've read other stories with him, but I don't know. I can't remember now whatever happened. I. Something tells me that the poor guy's dead now. I, I think he may have died at the hands of the Punisher, but I honestly can't remember. I think that they had him in that. Uh, there was that 12-issue limited series uh, with supervillain team-up, Modox uh, 12 or Modox 11, yeah. whatever it was. And I think he was one of the, you know, one of the gang in that. Oh, was oh, okay. Maybe you're, you're right. What I was thinking of, there was a story... And again, I think this happened right around the time of Civil War, where the Punisher lured a whole bunch of mostly lower-grade supervillains to a bar, and then he blew the place up and killed a whole bunch of them. I remember like the Armadillo was one of them, and there were a bunch of different ones that he killed. I thought the Gibbon was in that story, but I again, I'm not 100% on that. It's been a while since I've read that story. I'm pretty sure that the armadillo was also in that Modoc story. <laughs> okay, they were all like the more lame type ones, right? I so can't I, remember off the top of my head which other ones, but I'm pretty sure the armadillo was also one. Was that 
was that series before or after Civil War? Do you remember? Because that seems to me it was after, but I don't remember. Uh, I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> but yeah, I, see, I like that sort of thing too. And you know, I, I'm not fond of of character resurrections, but for some strange reason, I'm completely forgiving of them when they're like say like some obscure well like say like the the given if he was killed off in that punisher story but then somebody brought him right back in that modok story i'm perfectly happy with that because you know i i'm not a big fan of when when characters are just taken out because somebody else deems them to be lame and thinks it's okay to just bump off a creation i i think that's a little bit mean-spirited honestly yeah i prefer that they actually make an effort to make them not lame right yeah Okay, uh, Modox 11 looks like came out in 2007. I'm not sure what Civil War was. Uh, the villains in it were Armadillo, the Living Laser, Mentello, Modoc, Monica Rappaccini, who I don't even know who that is, Nightshade, Puma, Rocket Racer, Spot, and Super Adaptoid. Damn, I need to check that out. That sounds like it's actually really good. I like a lot of those characters. Actually, I have the trade, and I never sat down and read it yet, though. You know, I, it, it, I think it's a, a, you know, any any character is somebody's potential favorite. So I, I do. I think it's a little bit mean spirited to label anybody, you know, any of those characters lame. Because there's a lot of characters I think just plain get a bad rap. At some point, they may have had a bad story, and now all of a sudden they're they're considered lame. Where in their earlier appearances, they were actually, you know, a serious threat or a serious character. That that unfortunately that happens a lot of times in comics too. How the hell did uh, what's that one character? Is it Nightshade? How did he make the list? Nightshade is a she. Uh, she was a Captain America villain. Okay, I must be thinking of a different character. The one I was thinking of was the one that... Oh, the Shroud is who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the Shroud. That's He's actually a pretty badass character, I think. That's who I was thinking of was the Shroud, actually. Okay, yeah, anyway, the Shroud was kind of a... I guess like an anti-hero? I, yeah, I think so. I he remember, was also uh, introduced in Supervillain Teemo. Yeah, Kind of had Daredevil-like powers. Well, the thing that makes this a, uh, a double-sized anniversary issue is that the back half, the second feature in here, which I, I'm not going to go into much at all, it really is a very straight-up, almost panel-for-panel, panel, sometimes it almost looks like somebody just got out the light board and outright traced... Um, Amazing Fantasy 15. It's a it's a backup story uh, written by Stern with art by Greg LaRock and Bob Wyacek. It's called Birth of a Legend, and it is essentially Amazing Fantasy 15. But what's interesting about this is that it's Amazing Fantasy 15 um, through Roger Stern's filter, and I think he does better in this than has ever been done with basically taking Spider-Man's origin story and giving it very, very subtle tweaks that you really have to pour over in order to even catch them. 
You know what I mean? Just just a mm-hmm. couple little a little aim in the in the right direction as far as explaining a couple of things that were never quite explained with the original story, that sort of thing. What's interesting is he doesn't do the the big fix that I think so many writers are tempted to do of explaining the burglar. And I love that. I love that he leaves that part of it alone. I don't think you need an explanation with that. You know, why did the burglar, how, how was he able to come from New York City to all the way out to the burbs to kill Ben Parker? Who cares? He's a burglar. That's all I need to know. That's that's come, a come, come on, Scott. You you seriously don't think that it works that you know Uncle Ben was buying a computer and that you know the the burglar was working there as kind of like a shop boy and he thought that Ben Parker had money and decided to go rob his house. You don't you don't like that? It's not that I don't like it. I think it's completely unnecessary. That's that's my problem with it. Because I not, thought I was retarded myself. But. See, I, I don't think it's a matter of, of like it or dislike it. Because I, I, I really, I honestly, I, I, don't, I don't like it or dislike it. I think it's just as valid an explanation as the guy learned that there was a secret, you know, whatever the hell it was, pirate stash or whatever that was under the floorboards. I mean, that that was another, Arr. you know, explanation that was given at some point. I think that was uh, ASM 200, I think. Yes. But ultimately, I, I just look at that as, you're overthinking it, damn it. You're slowing down the narrative. Who cares? He's a freaking criminal. He killed he killed somebody. I don't need more than that. And, and, I and like let's that. be fair. The, I think they lived in Forest Hills, Queens. That is as a part of New York City proper. That is not a suburb. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm showing my ignorance of, I mean, of York how New York huge, City works. You know? But but it's you know it, it is you know there's Manhattan. There's the five boroughs. Right. So you know I guess the original meeting would have been in Manhattan, and then you know their house was in Queens. So it's it's really not that much of a trip. Okay. You know it's a little bit of a coincidence that you know that's the one house out of the you know. Probably millions in New York City. That, <laughs> but you know, other than that, it's, it's you know the the traveling distance isn't a big deal. I think by trying to fix what was never broken, I think all that's happened is that writers have called attention to that part of the story. That that's my personal feeling on it. Is that you 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 called attention to something that. <laughs> was there a problem here? You know, it was. Have there been, you know, legions of children that have been unable to sleep at night since 1962 or whatever, worrying about you know how how did that happen? You know, how did he get all the way out there? I, pff, I never gave it a, a minute's thought. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think you're you're missing. Uh, you know, the point of the story is that it's a morality tale. You know, by not doing what he could have done. At that time, now he's going to pay for that mistake for the rest of his life. Um, but anyway, I feel like I have gone on much, much too long. This is a phenomenal issue. I love Roger Stern as a writer. I think he wrote and handled Spider-Man better than anybody, Stan Lee included. And uh, just phenomenal stuff. And this was a real delight to uh, dig out of my collection and reread after so, so many years. And I'm so... Uh, Happy to find that uh, it stands the test of time, man. This is a damn good story. Did you, are you guys get, familiar with this one? Oh, absolutely. I got two things. 
Uh, one, you know, you mentioned the Miller cover. I don't think it's just nostalgia. I think that's a really, really nice cover. Uh, and the thing that makes it stand out to me is the use of light and shadow. Mm-hmm. And I think he just did a really, really good job. He's got the light coming up basically from underneath him uh, to the point where it's white light on his legs. And then behind him, the building is basically totally in shadow. And and it, the contrast is, is phenomenal. I think it's a great cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story, I'm in total agreement with you. However, the interior art, I don't really like. Uh, I, I think it's it lacks any kind of dynamic feel to it. It just seems kind of pedestrian. Uh, I don't know, you know, where, where you guys fall on the artwork in this one. I'm okay uh, with it. I mean, it look it looks very much like this era of spider-man to me so especially in spectacular spectacular always in looking at the issues i haven't read a whole bunch of them but in looking at them they always had kind of a certain look to them and this kind of falls in line with that it's it, sadly it's better than what would come in the later like 90s of the not the decade the 90s the night you know number 90 and yeah and, uh, uh where the artwork was just incredibly stiff uh i like it just fine yeah, I was trying to remember where my bailout point was on Spectacular, because I loved this title, but at some point something dramatically changed, and I bailed on it. And I, I can't remember exactly where that was, but for the longest time, this was a, this was one of my must-read books every month. I really, really dug. You know, from, from 59 forward for quite a, quite a run, I really dug this title. Um but going back to the art, you know, I, I don't know. It's see, the problem is, is I can't look at this objectively anymore. I, all I see it with is, you know, my my, you know, through rose-colored glasses. But in fairness, I mean, if if this were something I was picking up for the very first time today, um, I probably wouldn't dig on it. Um, but if, you know, in fairness, I, I will say this much: I'm amazed by the art in the aspect of. This is the same guy that drew a shit ton of uh, Supergirl in the Silver Age. And I look at that stuff, and it's, it's amazing to me to think that it's the same artist, because that stuff to me seems so stiff. And it's kitty comics, essentially. I look at this, and it's not the most fluid thing in the world, but... I, I see fluidity in it. I see action in it. I, I see dynamic uh, design and in in an attempt to try to to hold his own with the big boys that were going on at the time, like you know, like your Millers and and Byrne and Perez. You know that that this was a, a an older artist trying to hold his own in a in a newer field of comics, and I get that from the art, and I think he was really stepping up his game to try to compete with those guys. Was he entirely successful? I, I don't know. But it's not near as as stiff and childlike as those old uh, those old Supergirl stories. See I see I see an attempt at or not an attempt, I see success at storytelling. Uh, but as far as dynamic, I don't see that at all. Uh, one thing I got a big kick out of is when he goes in and he's washing his uh, costume 
that uh, <laughs> you know you you think Empire State University would have you know a washing machine and a dryer for their uh, sports teams, <laughs> but instead he's got a bucket full of water. And, and then a a, uh, a ringer. He's got a ringer attached to yeah. it, and he's putting his his costume through the ringer to dry it, or I guess to squeeze out the water, uh, which I I don't I don't know when the last time they made one of those. <laughs> There's a sequence in here that every time I see it just makes me flinch, and it's on page nine. Those three panels at the top. Spider-Man comes up out of the sewer. And there's a woman walking her dog, and the dog's going nuts, yapping at Spider-Man. And she fusses him out. And so Spider-Man just kind of slinks back down into the sewer. And he's holding the uh, the manhole cover over his head. And his fingers are curved around the edge of the, the manhole as he's lowering it down. And he thinks to himself, what more can happen? The very next panel is a car driving over the manhole cover and slamming it back down and i'm just thinking ah you know like his fingers got caught in there that just oh man it just gives me the willies thinking about it you know goodbye fingers yeah exactly there's there's five little or four little uh spidey fingers just sitting there on the pavement now Ugh. Ugh. But yeah, that's that's all I got on this one. I don't want to monopolize our time, but uh, I I love this. I really do. I think it's great. Yeah, I'm, I I like the issue overall, despite my complaints about the art. What do you think, Mike? You've been very quiet. I I, I haven't read this one yet. So, oh, okay. Uh, I, I I didn't get a chance to. I was kind of looking through it as you were going over it and it looks very interesting. Uh, I did read the, the origin back up and like that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought where he added stuff, it was very good and where he updated things like, you know, when Peter's sitting there asking Sally out, she's wearing a very early 80s, late 70s, early 80s outfit that a young girl would wear at that time period and I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, I like Greg LaRock as, a, as an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he... Um, he would go on to do a really good run on Legion of Superheroes. Yes, which I which I liked quite a bit, especially around the time. But I wouldn't read until like a decade later. But he would draw, you know, the death of Superboy. I was just going to ask uh, if he was the artist on that because I thought he was. Yes, yes, phenomenal he was. artist. Yeah. So just just really fantastic. Uh, back up there and the the main story as i was kind of reading through it i I did like the confrontation between pete and the uh the coach uh it's it's basically one of those times where as an adult peter isn't going to be bullied by the jock anymore right uh and i (laughs) kind of dug that it's like you're on my list it's like good luck with that you uh you 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 take 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 care of that however you think it's going to work work out and it's just going to go badly for you so (laughs) I was, but no, seemed seemed cool to me. I was racking my brains to try to remember where I might have first learned, you know, read rather the uh, the origin of Spider-Man. I guess there's every possibility that my, you know, the origin of Spider-Man for me may have been informed by this very issue. I honestly don't know. I'd like to think that it didn't take until I was 13 to read that story but there's you know like i say every possibility that uh that that this was it right here i i can't remember 
any other place that I may have read it prior to this. I had some reprint stuff of, of early Spider-Man stories, but I don't know if any of them reprinted uh, Amazing Fantasy 15 or not. I, I really don't remember. But that's it. Who wants to go next? Uh, I guess that would be me. Go for it. <laughs> well, I chose Spider-Man number 100 from September of 1971. Cover price is $0.15, cents, and it has what I consider to be a very iconic cover by John Romita Sr. and Frank Giacoa. I would argue that this is second only to the cover of Amazing Fantasy 15 as far as the iconic covers of Spider-Man. I'm sure some people would take issue with that, but that's my position. The title of the story is The Spider or the Man, and the credits are that it is created and written by Stan Lee. No credit to Steve Ditko, I notice. Uh, illustrated by Gil Kane, embellished by Frank Giacoa, and lettered by Artie Simic. The story opens up with Spider-Man swinging over the city on patrol, and he states that he's been out for hours and hasn't seen any action. He decides that he's going to go home, and he sees some gunmen fleeing a bank. He helps uh, an outnumbered police officer to apprehend the robbers, and once that's done, he starts uh, self-pitying uh, and wondering how they're going to try to present him as being the villain in this issue or in this uh, affair. Uh, he feels unappreciated and laments how he's just not enjoying being Spider-Man the way he used to. He feels that all the people around him are living their lives while he's just watching from the sidelines. He changes back into his civilian clothes and thinks about Gwen and thinks about how she blames Spider-Man for her father's death, which had not occurred all that long before this one. This is issue 100. Her father had died, I believe, in issue 90. Uh, he wants to marry her, but he can't imagine how he'd be able to keep his secret identity from her uh, when they were married. If they were married, and he decides that in order to marry Gwen, he needs to stop being Spider-Man. The next scene we see Peter in his apartment, which is empty because Harry is in the hospital, and that is because of the recent uh, drug issues. Harry is an addict and is ill because of that, and in the hospital, he. It, he says something to the effect that he's been working on a project to make himself normal for years, just in case the radiation in his blood ever became dangerous. Uh, the problem is he has no way of knowing if it's going to work, but decides that Gwen is worth the risk, and he drinks the uh, formula. He starts to feel as if he's having explosions in his brain and lays down and passes out. In his delirium, he begins to think about how being Spider-Man has impacted all the people with whom he has personal relationships. He thinks of his Aunt May and how he failed to stop the burglar that killed Uncle Ben. He thinks about J. Jonah Jameson and how much he hates Spider-Man. He thinks about Betty and Ned and how he would have been with Betty if not for Spider-Man. Uh, a little bit of an ego on that one. And finally, he thinks about Gwen and how she blames him for her father's death. The next scene, it just cuts from that to him in costume up on a rooftop where he hears a voice calling to him and he starts to follow that voice. While he does that, he's attacked by the Vulture, and in relatively short order, he defeats the Vulture, and he's attacked by the Lizard. He then defeats the Lizard by webbing his face, and he continues to try and follow the voice. As he does that, he's attacked by the Green Goblin, who he also defeats pretty quickly. He's then attacked by Doc Ock, 
And throughout all these attacks, he's complaining about feeling pain at his sides. He defeats Doc Ock, and he's attacked by the Kingpin. And they have a little bit of a slugfest, and he eventually defeats the Kingpin. And as he's fighting each of these villains, they all talk about how he's a failure and how he hurts the people he cares about uh, and things to that effect. After he defeats the Kingpin, he sees where the voice is coming from and basically in the sky he sees a giant face of Captain Stacy, Gwen's father, who basically tells Spider-Man that he's a good man and that he's done all he can and that being Spider-Man is his blessing and his curse and basically that he needs to accept that in order to do what he needs to do, he can't live a normal life. And at this point, Peter re- regains consciousness. And it's it, it was never really hidden that he was dreaming this whole time, but now it's basically revealed for certain that he was dreaming. Uh, and he mentions that his sides hurt, hurt worse than ever, and it must have something to do with the potion he drank. He reaches down, he removes his shirt, and says he wanted to change, but not like this, not like this. And as he pulls off his shirt, you see that he now has six arms. And the issue ends with an indication that this is not a cop-out, that he really is awake and really has six arms. And I personally think that this may have been Spider-Man's best cliffhanger ever. Wow. Uh, and it's been repeated. I mean, they've told, retold the story. It was in the 90s cartoon. Uh, I just I remember reading this, and I didn't read it brand new on the newsstand because I didn't start reading for a couple of years after this one came out, maybe two or three years later. But I remember when I got this issue, I just thought it was the most incredible thing, and I needed to get issue 101 and 102 to find out how this thing ended. <laughs> but it's it's kind of... I can't say something they did all the time, but I can think of at least two other occasions with anniversary issues where they did a similar storytelling trope. Uh, In Fantastic Four number 100, uh, the Puppet Master creates robots of basically all the Fantastic Four's old villains, and one by one they have to go through these villains. And then in an issue we talked about a couple of episodes ago, Hulk number 200... Uh, the Hulk goes into, was it Major Talbot's brain, I think it is, and yeah, meets up with all these antibodies who take the form of his old villains who he has to defeat. So it's kind of a you know a, a, a storytelling method that they used so that they could see you know feature all these villains in the anniversary issue and have them defeated relatively quickly, but not have it be. You know that he's really defeating the real thing because then you kind of cheapen them by having them beaten so easily, right? Uh, whereas in this in this way, you know, you're able to 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 feature them all but never cheapen them, and I think you know that's why they did it that way. A uh, couple of points on this one. Uh, I had thought about like Scott the way you uh, went into the lead up issue and doing that. I had thought about. Uh, giving a a synopsis of the two follow-up issues and how this is resolved, because I do believe this is his best cliffhanger ever. But I thought I'd I'd hold off, and maybe one one month when when I have Marvel again, I might go to that one anyway. Uh, But just one point is, in issue 101, 
he starts thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? I got these six arms, and he starts imagining himself as, you know, fighting villains with the six arms. But then he starts thinking about, well, what am I going to do when I tell Aunt May? And, you know, they show what he's imagining, and they have, like, she's in her kitchen, and he comes walking in, and he's, he's got the six arms, but he also has a windbreaker with six arms on it. <laughs> it's, it's not that he just burst through the shirt and had these six arms. He's actually, you know, went to a tailor and had a six-arm jacket made before he got to Aunt May's house, just so that he would look good when he told her. And I, I just saw that, I thought it was very comical. Well, Peter's <laughs> a good nephew. So you know, <laughs> he doesn't he, want to come in there all ragged. I, I mean, you want to, you want to, you want to break it to her gently. So yeah, I'm no. just making this up as I go along. <laughs> so, but you know, she she may be upset that he has the six arms, but she'll see he's well groomed and <laughs> won't be quite as upset. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, I thought he was a little rash, to say the least, about taking, uh, you know, deciding to get rid of his powers, but uh, the only explanation I could come up with that with for that is that if he still had his powers, he wouldn't be able to just go forward living his life and not be Spider-Man because of the whole with great power comes great responsibility thing. Uh, But I really just can't imagine that with the experiences he's had, that he would just take this untested potion and on the spur of the moment just drink it. Uh, I mean, the lizard did that, and look what happened to him. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, Harry was in the hospital during this issue because of his drug use. That was in issue 96 and 97, I think. Mm-hmm. And the letters column in this issue is full of letters praising them for making the choice they did and you know, being responsible. Uh, I love the Gil Kane art in this. I... I don't know that Gil Kane was an artist I appreciated when I was younger. Yeah. Uh, but as I got older, I appreciated him more and more. Uh, he's, he's always got that looking up the nose thing going. Yeah. But he, he's, he, there's one point in particular where he's got like the, uh, a montage of Peter working on, a, on the formula to remove his powers. And that's kind of classic Gil Kane art. Uh, when he shows Peter sick... That's also like one of his trademarks, and uh, I always thought Kilcain just drew very attractive, natural-looking women, not the, you know, the the Maxim models that you'd see in the '90s. The, you know, he drew real women, and I always thought they were very pretty. Uh, there's some ads in this one that I thought were great. There are at least four ads for doing high school correspondence courses at home, <laughs> uh, which, which makes me wonder, like, what type of uh, demographics they had. You know, they talked about how college students were reading their comics, but you know, there are several correspondence courses. There's a, uh, a half-page ad for John Romita or Herb Trippy art portfolios, which cost, I think, three ninety-five each, Jeez. which would have been pretty cool to have at the time. Uh, there's an ad for Joe Weider strong arm method bracelets, uh, which I find to be really kind of interesting because the model is Arnold Schwarzenegger before people would have known him by name. <laughs> uh, yeah, Schwarzenegger was actually very tied with Joe Weider through his career. Uh, Joe Weider was, you know, the 
publisher of Men's Health Magazine and uh, Muscle and Fitness and a couple of other things. And, uh, you know, Arnold was his biggest uh, draw. There's a Polaris Nucleus Sub that is over seven feet long and seats two kids. And it was only six ninety eight. dollars I'm not really sure it was nuclear-powered. Uh, they had the Cell Grit ad. And they brag about how you can make seven cents clear profit on every copy that you sell. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, all pyramid schemes. Uh, yeah. Was grit a, a pyramid scheme? Always felt like one to me. I mean, uh, I think the only reason Scott read it because it had Star Wars, uh, the Star Wars yeah. comic strip in it. My my grandmother was a was a regular. She swore by grit. She was a regular subscriber. And uh, <laughs> if yeah. it's not in grit, it didn't happen. <laughs> well, I, I, can, I, I can. That was the nineteen seventy version of the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I can only imagine it was because, you know, she had so many kids, I'm sure, that, that some of my uncles were probably, they probably had, like, a a grit route or something at some point, and she got, you know, she got sucked into it and was just, you know, just one of those things that you did. You kept up your subscription to grit, but I well, loved yeah, it because that's... Then, because if she didn't, the kid would kneecap her. I mean... <laughs> he needed that seven cents. It was an extortion <laughs> scheme, Scott. You never stopped this, and therefore your grandmother was horribly, horribly tortured. See, I don't I think don't I've ever sorry. seen an issue of Grit. <laughs> I've seen the ads for it many times. I don't think I've ever seen an issue, though. Yeah, I mean, it was basically... It was just a... It was a newspaper. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked pretty much like the, the pictures that they would show in some of the advertisements, you know, where the kid was coming to the door with the... With a little grit paper. I mean, it was about the size of like a like a penny saver or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about was it weekly that. or daily? Uh, I want to say it was weekly. I think because the strips that I used to cut out of it, because this was the weird thing is that there was a regular weekly Star Wars strip that Russ Manning did. And then in grit, and this is why I used to like to get them, is that I would cut the thing out of grit, and it would se- it would tell essentially the same exact story, but it was like a parallel universe version because some of the dialogue would be a little different, some of the sequencing would be a little bit different, but whereas the weekly strip was a strip, and it was usually like a three-panel strip every you know every day, the one that was in grit was a um i don't know how to describe it It was like a you know you know like the size of like the sunday comics mm-hmm. um you know like a peanut strip how they look in the sunday comics they're like a block with like th- what is it three sets of of grids i think right. it was like that size so you would basically get the whole week's worth of the daily in that one block in grit so that's what makes me think it was a weekly paper as opposed to, um, you know, whatever format, you know, monthly or, or weekly or, or, you know, whatever, or I mean, a daily or whatever. I'm pretty sure it was weekly. But again, they that's, that's mad, just a guess. They're mad for making money selling greeting cards for the cheerful car company. <laughs> uh, I, I just, you know, I got the impression that, that they were marketing to... Uh, High school dropouts would be looking for a way to make money. <laughs> that's kind of you know? what it sounds like, yeah. That's that's what it felt like. I mean, just think about the whole grit thing. Even even if you go back to 1971 economics, 
seven cents a copy. That means you have to sell a hundred copies to make seven dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, good luck. That's why <laughs> I was gang motivated. I'm telling you, this was the <laughs> greatest criminal enterprise ever. They they make it sound like it. You know, I mean, they actually wrote seven cents clear profit on every copy, as if that was a huge selling point. You know, whoa, oh, give me, you know, get me a couple of hundred of these. You know. Well, you know, I mean, it depends on who was... I mean, if it was a neighborhood kid, you know, if it was just a kid, you know, like a, a, a junior high age kid, you know, seven cents, I mean, because I, I can remember walking all the way across town, I mean, from one end of the friggin' town to the other, just to go to the, the... There was this little convenience store where we would cash in Pepsi bottles, and if I was willing to do that, my parents would let me keep the money. And I would turn that money around, and it was cent- I mean, it was less than a dollar, whatever the, mm. the money was that they would give you for a whole six-pack. And I would turn that money around and buy trading cards. And at that time, trading cards were like 14 or 16 cents, something like that. They were under 20 cents. So, I mean, three copies of Grit, you got your trading cards right there. You know, so, I mean, you know, to a, to a kid, you know, that's probably not a bad deal. You know, to to an older crowd, you know, like you were talking about the high school dropouts or whatever, yeah, you know, you'd have to you'd have to move, really move your ass and move a lot of copies of Grit to, you, you know, you be able to pay the rent just or to something. Pay for your GED. <laughs> just for your, your correspondence course. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if we have any any uh, anyone in the audience that's more familiar with uh, with grit and the, and the scheme there. I'd I'd love to know that. Well, if we do, please send an email, and one day Scott will read through the emails and let us know. <laughs> oh, damn, man, jeez, wow. <laughs> I I felt that. God. Well, it wasn't it wasn't meant to be mean. Oh, okay. It just came off that way. That's a good shot, though. It's your it's it's your accent. It really is. <laughs> it has to be. Well, what's funny is all through your synopsis, I kept waiting. I'm and, and you know, with bated breath, I'm sitting here going, well, "When when is he going to get to the part with Luke Cage? Where's the Luke Cage part? Where's the Power Man fight? What the hell? You got all the way through it, and there's no Luke Cage." I'm going, "Am I just stupid or something? Do I not remember this story properly?" Well, I don't. Because I don't have a copy of Amazing Spider-Man uh, 100, but I thought I had it reprinted in Marvel Tales. So I pulled it up uh-huh. here, and I'm looking at Marvel Tales 100, which has a very similar cover to ASM 100. But Marvel Tales 100 does not reprint ASM 100. I don't know what the hell issue it is. But I, it is. I can tell you what issue it is. It's oh, okay. one twenty-three. One twenty. Okay, so that's it's the, the issue, issue right after Gwen Stacy died. Ah, uh, okay. That's or, the right issue where he died. fights Luke Cage, and that's why I had it confused because it's that's Marvel Tales one hundred, not ASM one hundred. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he does not fight Luke Cage. Uh, yeah, that was right after uh, the. You know, Gwen Stacy died, the Green Goblin died, and Spider-Man was being blamed for it, and J. Jonah Jameson hired Luke Cage to bring him yeah, to justice. That's right. I like that story because uh, Luke Cage references Batman several times in that story, which I always got a real kick out of. 
he, he actually calls, I think he calls him Bruce Wayne. I don't think he ever says the words Batman, but he says Bruce Wayne at least a couple of times, which I always thought was very amusing. But, uh, yeah, I need to, I, it's been a long time since I've read that story that you that you just did, but I like that one too. That's a really good one. And I, and I totally agree with you that uh, I, I'm guilty of the same thing. I totally didn't appreciate Gil Kane in his time. But over the years, whenever I chance across something by him, generally I really enjoy it now in a way that I didn't when I was a kid. Um, yeah, I, I think he was actually a very, very underrated artist. Especially especially when he had the right anchor. Right. If, if he had the wrong anchor, it would come off a little rough. Yeah. But when he would smooth it out a little bit, his layouts were usually, you know, th- th- they would have the dynamic feel that I was looking for in that last issue and felt like I wasn't getting. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when somebody was punched, you know, you would see them flying across in, in his perspectives were not traditional. Uh, I, I, I love his work. I really do. A lot of his his panel layouts and and designs of fights where he would uh, have people get hit and kind of fly across the screen. In in that way, he reminds me a lot of Byrne because if you look at Byrne's history, he kind of has stock moves when it comes to fights and the way people fly across panels. Uh, Kane was the same way. A lot mm-hmm. of times his, his images of somebody being hit or knocked back by something are, are almost interchangeable from character to character or, or scene to scene. So, I, I, you know, I both like and dislike that at the same time, you know, that they, they all have kind of their stock fight footage, you know, for lack of a better term. I get a kick out of that. Yeah, you, don't, you don't have this issue in front of you, right? No, no, I don't. Oh, because... I think there's exactly what we're talking about uh, when he fights the Green Goblin and he basically kicks him off of the glider and you see the Goblin coming flying towards the reader. Right. And and I think that's, that's exactly it. And there's, there's actually a couple of others that are similar in here, but that one in particular. I can picture it in my mind's eye because I know that there's, uh, there's shots in Green Lantern that look almost exactly the same where, like, the lantern would try to do something with his ring and get, you know, like, basically a pushback from it and have that same angle of, you know, he's flying back from something. I, I think Gain, uh, Gil Kane did that sort of thing a lot. Well, also, I was thinking, you know, you are talking about that dream sequence, and just the way that you described it took me back to a record that I had when I was a kid. It was a Spider-Man record that I suspect was a reprinting of... Um, what the hell is the name of that album? The Spider-Man rock opera thing. Uh, oh, Mike, the, uh, Mike recently did a whole retrospective on that. Uh, the um, uh, Spider-Man rock, rock reflections. reflections of a superhero. Reflections of a superhero. That was it. Now, do- doesn't that start with a dream sequence? No, it has right. a dream sequence at the end of Doctor of uh, Peter fighting. Uh, the Green Goblin and all that, and then he... Or was it the dream sequence was the Dr. Octopus song? I'm trying to remember how it Maybe went. these were two different albums. Because the one I'm thinking of, I thought it started where, where Peter's asleep and he keeps encountering different supervillains in his sleep. That and is a rock comic 
Um, that was different. That was in the early 70s. Uh, the, the theme song to that is freaking hilarious. Is that the one? It's uh, such a groove to be free. Is that the one? <laughs> uh, n- no, this, that's on Rock Reflections. Yeah. It's we'll have to. To be free. <laughs> If we had more time, I would sit there and send you YouTube links of different songs. But I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the Rock comic began with a dream sequence of him fighting all his villains, and then he wakes up to the Kingpin calling him. Yes, saying, yeah. I've, kid- I've kidnapped you. Yeah, that's the Rock comic. Okay. And the guy that sang the, the lead song on that... Uh, one, one, Peter Parker is voiced by Rene Odo Abijuan or however. Oh, no way, really? Yes, and uh, the guy doing the singing uh, for at least the main song, which is a fun little song, actually, uh, was the guy that sang on Sugar Sugar and like all the Archie songs. Oh, wow. So. Huh, I didn't know It's that official. That, I know too much. That Odo played uh, Spider-Man. That's pretty cool. That's actually really cool. Not quite as good as Bill Murray playing Johnny Storm, but still good. <laughs> he actually did a pretty good job in those. I like those things. I, I laugh every time I hear that, just because, to me, the voice is so obviously Bill Murray. Yeah. But that's a story for another day. Uh, my last note on this one was just to, as a callback to a prior uh, episode we did, is when they show the kingpin, he's got a cigarette holder. Cigarette holder equals evil. <laughs> and my grandmother had a... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so your grandmother was the head of the grit thing. I get it now. She was the head of the grit and the kingpin comes... of upstate New York. The grit king. The grit king. <laughs> that sounds like a supervillain name, doesn't it? Or, or maybe not. He's southern and he <laughs> throws chunks of lard at you that are super heated. But no, not quite he's, as cool as the Gibbon. No, he's basically like a giant muck monster made out of grits. That would be uh, freaking uh, awesome, dude. But you know how you defeat him? You just pour hot water over him and he <laughs> just dilutes. He, 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 can, he has three different superpowers. He either hits you with syrup, cheese, or butter. So. <laughs> I want to see him battle Rogue. At the end of it, she comes walking out and with little bits of grits all over, and the X-Men are like, so how was the Grit King? Delicious. Or if you can cross, uh, cross company it, she could fight, uh, or he could fight uh, Matter-Eating Lad. <laughs> that would be awesome. I'd be down for that. But unless uh, you guys have anything else on this one, I'm passing it on to you, Mike. Alrighty, well, I have an amazing, no pun intended, anniversary issue to talk about this was in the pages of astonishing spider-man number 14 have a cover date of november 1996 and this is his okay no one's laughing so my joke failed um i have a copy in my hands of astonishing uh spider-man number 14 for those of you not aware in the united kingdom they have a pretty healthy reprint program with marvel uh, through the 70s and 80s, uh, it was a weekly book uh, that would reprint the stuff coming from the United States. Usually there was a lag time with new covers. Uh, as Scott will tell you, some of these UK reprints can be a little wonky with the with the backups and stuff. Oh, yeah. Because they have to fill in, because there's 
splitting up a monthly book over a weekly schedule. Uh, Spider-Man had a number of titles, and if Andy Leyland were on the call, he could tell us basically every single one of them. But in 1996, a new series started up called Astonishing Spider-Man. And basically it started reprinting right before the Clone Saga and went through and, and went on for a good number of years. I like British reprints quite a bit. Um, I just like seeing how the stories are repackaged and, and distributed to other countries. And since it went to England, I can read it because it's, it's, it's still, it's not, I, I was really disappointed that they didn't start putting use into words like color. Uh, I figured if you were going to go to all the trouble of reprinting it in England, you would do that, but apparently not. This has a beautiful cover now, uh, of Spider-Man hugging a tombstone marked Parker this is the issue that reprinted Amazing Spider-Man number 400, which is why I chose it to this, because it was kind of an anniversary issue. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the original cover to Amazing Spider-Man number 400, but it's god-awful. Yeah, I was just going to say it sucked ass. Well, I do remember Because you can't it. see what's on it. <laughs> yeah, it's this, uh, this amorphous gray blob uh, with a little 3D texture to it. Not really compared to other covers that were anniversary. I mean... Issue 100 has an iconic cover. Issue 200 has a really neat uh, cover as well. 300, man, that 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 thing is everywhere, uh, and they're kind of redoing it a little bit for 700. But even 500 and 600 had really cool covers to them. 400 did not. This one, even though Spider-Man's a little beefy for me, uh, I think it, it more accurately. Re- accurately, as uh, Kurt Mellish would say here in WSB in Atlanta, um, accurately reflects what's going on in the issue. It's it's just a... Re- there's rain falling down, there's a tree in the background, Spider-Man kneeling uh, next to this uh, headstone, and it says a death in the family. But as I said, this reprints Amazing Spider-Man number 400. The Gift. And the credits on this bad boy are J.M. J.M. DeMatteis as writer, Mark Bagley, penciler, Larry Malstead, inker, with uh, Randy Emberlin inking pages 32 and 33, uh, Oakley NY2 letterer, Bob Sharon, colorist, Danny Fingeroth was the editor, and Bob Budiansky was the chief, because if I'm remembering correctly, this was the time when they had split Marvel into five different editors-in-chief, and you had, like, one guy over the X-Line, which was Bob Harris, Bob Bobby Chase was over the uh, Marvel Edge line, which had the Hulk and Punisher, and so on and so on. And this is dedicated with de- deep respect and admiration to Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and John Romita Jr. We open on Spider-Man swinging across New York City, desperately trying to get to the hospital, because he has received word that his Aunt May has woken up from her coma, and boy, is he happy about it. She wants to get home in a hurry, because she's kind of sick of being in the hospital. Her doctor advises against it, but Aunt May is pretty firm on the fact that in the morning, she's going home. Peter happens to glance over his shoulder and sees that Ben Riley, the Scarlet Spider, is looking in from the window outside. And he's kind of pissed off about this because the last thing his aunt needs right now is a shock to the system. Apparently, Ben Riley feels the same way because he quickly scurries off and starts thinking about how, well, it kind of sucks being him because he's a clone and everything. 
He thinks he sees a shadowy figure in the uh, over on a gargoyle, but when the lightning flashes, it turns out that his mortal enemy, Kane, was not there. We cut to a brief scene of the Jackal acting all crazy at Arkham... I mean, Ravencroft, because even though so obviously Arkham Asylum in the Spider-Man universe. Uh, we cut back to the Parker household. May uh, Peter brings May home. And as soon as she sees uh, Mary Jane, she knows that Mary Jane is pregnant and gives a little speech to them about how happy uh, her uh, Peter's parents were and how that being a parent is the greatest responsibility. There is no greater responsibility. She keeps kind of harping on that for a while. As uh, Mary Jane gets her to bed, Ben Riley comes into the house, and inexplicably, and I only point this out because I, I think Andy Leyland did a good job of making fun of it over on Hey Kids Comics, inexplicably, to go outside to talk to the Scarlet Spider, Peter puts on his costume. And basically, the Scarlet Spider has decided that now that Aunt May is better, he's going to leave town and start his life anew. Peter wishes him luck and says to keep in touch and to let him know if there's anything he needs. And the Scarlet Spider's like, no, nope, I promise you'll never see or hear from me again. So we cut to Mary Jane tucking Aunt May in, having a nice little moment with her. She goes downstairs to find Peter watching old home movies of Aunt May and his parents from when he was a baby. And they talk about, you know, just generally everything that's been going on recently. Cut to a scene with Judas Traveler, which really has no bearing on this particular story, but uh, he was kind of one of the bad guys of the early part of the Clone Saga. Cut to Ben Riley packing his bag very slowly because he doesn't quite want to leave, though he knows he does. We get a flashback of an early time with Ben, of him being uh, sitting on a park bench and being hassled by a cop. He manages to escape, but really doesn't know what's going on in his life, and cut back to the present, where Aunt May and Peter are on the Empire State Building. And they have, you know, they talk about how they used to bring Peter there when he was a kid, and how much they loved it. And he uh, ben used to bring her there on dates because, well, apparently it was cheaper than going to the movies, but she always thought it was special. And then she lays the bombshell on him. She goes, Peter, how does it feel? How does it feel what? Swinging over the city, almost flying, really. How wonderful to be so light, so free. And that's when Aunt May admits that she knows that Peter Parker is the amazing Spider-Man. And they have a nice little moment over this. Peter starts crying, and then she kind of weakens a little bit and says that she probably overdid it a little bit that day, and she wants to go home. Well, unfortunately, May takes a turn for the worse. Her fever worsens, and the doctor says that they really need to get her back to the hospital, but she refuses. She says this last week has been a gift, and that she knows... Um, that Peter has never really been good at letting go. And you know, losing his parents the way he did made it so hard for him. But she says that it's, his, that it's her time. It's her time to go. Outside, the Scarlet Spider uh, climbs up the side of the house and is listening to Aunt May and Peter talking. And uh, Peter says, I was so scared, so confused, but I know that you'd help me. And you did. You told me I had a journey to make and that it was my destiny 
He said, what am I supposed to do? I asked, I asked you, where am I supposed to go? And you reminded me of that book you'd read to me over and over when I was little. You pointed to the night sky, and do you know what you said? Second star to the right, and straight on till morning. Remember that? Remember Peter Pan and Wendy? Michael and John would fly over the city and up into the heavens? That's what I want you to do, Aunt May. Let go. Fly. Second to the right, and straight on till morning. And Aunt May passes. Outside, Ben Riley takes off his mask and is crying. We cut to the funeral. The, the minister says his words. She's lowered into the ground. Peter and MJ have a moment in front of the cast, uh, in front of the tombstone. And then after they leave, Ben Riley comes to pay his respects. And unfortunately, they don't get that much time to mourn because afterwards, uh, Detective Connor, Detective Connor Trevane of the NYPD and Lieutenant Raven of the Salt Lake City Police Department come. And they arrest Peter Parker for murder. And that's the main... Uh, at the end, the Scarlet Spider watches this and then goes and, and introduces himself to Mary Jane and says uh, he thinks it's time that they met face-to-face. And there's a couple backup stories to this. Uh, one is called uh, Aftershocks Part 1 which deals with Peter being arraigned and Mary Jane and the Scarlet Spider kind of meeting for the first time. There's a second one called The Morning After, um, which was originally presented in Amazing Spider-Man number 400. Aftershocks Part 1 came in Spider-Man number 57, but because this is a reprint series, they actually throw it in here too. The Morning After is actually a... It's a it's a sweet little story. It's it's basically the morning after Peter has caught the burglar that uh, killed Uncle Ben, and he has a confrontation, quote unquote, with Aunt May in the uh, in the kitchen where she doesn't want to hear Spider Man's name because she thinks that he just caught Ben's killer as a as being an opportunist, and that he didn't really care about Uncle Ben, and she goes up. Uh, to lie down. The the best part of this story to me is that it's one of the few times I've ever seen Tom Grummet draw Spider-Man. And uh, I love Tom Grummet, and I really wish I would have seen more of him on Spider-Man because his Peter Parker, it's really kind of funny, his Peter Parker looks a lot like uh, his Clark Kent <laughs> that he would draw in that um, Superboy number zero, actually. But... Um, when this came out in 95, uh, I wasn't reading Spider-Man, but my buddy Brian, who I was going to college with, bought 400, and I remember sitting in his dorm room while he was playing video games reading it. This is a really powerful issue. Very powerful story. Especially if you've lost someone you loved, I think it hits you a little harder. Uh, unfortunately, I think some of the impact this issue had has been taken away because it was revealed later that the Aunt May that died here was not Aunt May, but an actress who apparently was really into method. Uh, she just sat there and died for her role. And that it was all a plot by Norman Osborn. But taken by itself, it's an amazing story. Peter is just so excited that Aunt May has woken up. They have this amazing week together. She reveals that she knows he's Spider-Man. And then, you know, she passes, at home, surrounded by her loved ones. And Mark Bagley's art just sells 
this entire scene, especially her death and the the aftermath. The you know, it, Aunt May's. This is going to sound terrible, but Aunt May on the scene where Peter is kind of slumped over her and Anna and Mary Jane are crying in the background, Aunt May looks like a dead body. Uh, usually in comics, when somebody dies, they look pretty much the same as they did in the previous panel. But he managed to put some detail into her face and let and to let you know that this is somebody who is just not alive anymore. And then it cuts to Ben Riley on the roof outside, just tears streaming down his face. And the whole thing... There are, there's no dialogue in the funeral scene. There's none, but you don't need any. Everything is there for you. And for me, that's why this will always be my favorite anniversary issue, because of the ones that I've read, it's the most emotionally hard-hitting. What do you guys think? I, uh, I'm i a big fan of this issue. I, I picked this issue up... Um, I wasn't reading Spider-Man as a regular, uh, you know, as a regular title during this time. I picked it up um, because it was hyped. I mean, it was talked about a lot, so I knew it was coming out. And uh, as a long-standing Aunt May detractor is probably the nicest way to put it, I was excited. And finally, the old bat's going to kick the bucket. You know, I was really excited about that. And then I actually read the issue. And felt horrible for feeling that way because for the first time I can ever remember, you know, here was an Aunt May story that I actually liked that that made her, you know, an interesting character and and made her actually feel important to, you know, Spider-Man's world because I never bought the argument that she was an essential part of his supporting cast. I felt like she was just you know, an albatross around his neck, you know, a, a lodestone on, on Peter Parker. And I, I always resented her for that. I felt that she was really holding his character back. But this, I thought, was just a fantastic story. And it's funny, all through your synopsis, I kept thinking, I have just written, where did I write something about that? I was just writing something about this issue. And I think... I think it was the letter I sent to Hey Kids that they just haven't gotten to yet on the show. I'm pretty sure that's where it was because they covered this issue and uh, mm-hmm. and I, I you know I had a lot to say about it because um, when I was still living in Georgia, um, Mark Bagley, for reasons I still don't understand, put in an appearance at the Douglasville Mall of he all lives places. In that, he lives in South Georgia. I know, but I mean that's just such an odd place for him to appear. There's no comic shops there. There's really nothing. I mean, it was like just out of the blue. Hey, Mark Bagley at the local mall, and it was just really kind of bizarre. You know what I mean? Because to the average person, they don't have any clue who he is. But you know, I thought it was a big deal, so I went. And you know, there was a nice little crowd gathered for him and all that, but even a lot of them, I don't think they really knew or appreciated exactly who he was. But I went with just you know uh, just a couple of books. Actually, I think it was literally just two books because uh, I know this was one of them, and um, Spider-Man, Batman was one of them because I you know I, I wanted to get that book signed. I, I liked that book a lot, but I also I wanted to ask him. 
you know, dude, when are you ever going to do some more Batman? Because at that time, that was the only Batman he'd ever done, you know, the only published Batman he'd ever done. And I really liked his take on Batman and wanted to see more of it. But anyway, um, you know, he had a, he had a line, so he didn't get a lot of time to spend with each person. But we got to talk for a couple of minutes about this book. And, you know, he revealed that, you know, this was one of his absolute favorite issues that he'd ever worked on. And he didn't ever come right out and say it, but he was not happy about the retconning of this issue at all. And the retconning sucks. It does suck. And I've, I hate that. I absolutely hate that they retcon this story away because... Not only is it a phenomenal story, you know, it, it's really a, a classy send-off to a character. You know, love or hate Aunt May, this was this was mm-hmm. a, a good send-off for that character. It was it was you know her story was done with this issue. There was absolutely zero need to resurrect that character. And I've always pointed to the fact of all right, you can give me your stupid actress story. Two issues from now, there's a battle for Aunt May's soul. So how does that work in your little retconning thing? I don't she, think she was such a method actress. She didn't even give up the role in death. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's completely ridiculous, and I don't think it's <laughs> ever been addressed. You know, I mean, no, come they're on. they're not going to. They they brought her back during the whole Burn Mackey reboot. Right uh, to you know to take the 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 books back to a more quote unquote classic feel, uh, you know it, it's kind of funny though that uh, you know since that happened, uh, you know brand new day happened and I think people are probably looking favorably more favorably on the Burn Mackey reboot. Absolutely. Nowadays. Well, one how thing I want to uh, go ahead. How much time passed between this and the and the uh, retcon of bringing her back? That, About three four years. Yeah. Because. I remember reading the retcon, and I didn't like it, but I thought, okay, the story makes some sense. You know, Norman Osborn is maniacal, and he would do these crazy things and all that. But when you read this story, when you reread this story with that retcon in mind, it makes no sense at all. Because there's no way that this is an actress. It's just stupid. One thing that that I would like to clear up, though, is that it was the Mackie reboot in this particular... It was actually Mackie. Byrne didn't have anything to do with the issue. Beyond drawing the cover for the issue, Byrne did not have a hand in resurrecting Aunt May. He might not have had a problem with it, but the issue where Aunt May actually returns, Byrne did not have anything to do with he's not credited in any way with that and i think he gets falsely blamed i think he takes the burden of the blame the brunt of the blame for that decision and i think it's uh i think it's not right i i think this is one of the best written most personal stories i've ever read in a comic and when I read it, I found it moving. When I reread it this afternoon, because I we were going to do this tonight, I, I actually, like towards the end, started getting goosebumps. And Mike, when you were doing your synopsis, it happened again. It's so well written. And, and like you say, and if you've ever experienced losing somebody who you care about, it is so personal. 
mm-hmm. uh, that it just seems like a personal affront for them to have just written this off. Oh yeah, it was an actress. I, I find that you know they took a great story and, and cheapened it in a way that I didn't think you can do retroactively. <laughs> and 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 it, it 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 normally things like that don't bother me, but in this case it did. Well, you know, it's just. I, I think we're all we're all adults here, uh, at, no, least physi- at least physically. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I, I think you know, between the three of us, we have like maybe seventy five years of comic reading experience, uh, all thrown into one, and we know that retcons happen. We know that a couple years down the line, a writer's not. <coughs> Excuse me. We know a writer's going to come along and just either completely ignore or completely change something that we thought was good, uh, that was something that was personal to us, but sometimes that reboot ends up working out. I think Man of Steel is a good example of that. There were people in 1986, I am sure, that were mad that John Byrne took Superman back to basics and revamped the character, but for a kid like me, that was when I came into the books, and it was the greatest thing ever. And there's a certain level of quality to burn Superman stories. Uh, I don't think there was anything really added to the Spider-Man story by bringing Aunt May back. It, it, It was just basically resetting the clock a little bit, just so you could have that dynamic. And in reading those early Mackie written issues where Byrne would do the art in ASM and John Romita Jr. would do it and Peter Parker Spider-Man. It it was just it was god awful. It was terrible. I mean, I didn't really care that they brought her back. That that isn't the thing that that bothers me. What bothers me is that they said this wasn't her. Yeah. Uh, you know, if they had said okay, we went back in time and got her before she died and cured her or something stupid like that, it really wouldn't bother me. I wouldn't care. But to, like I said, to have such an emotional moment and everything and, and have that, you know, them spending that last time together and her revealing that she knew all along that he was Spider-Man and everything. And then to just, say, yeah, no, that was an actress Norman Osborne hired. It just, I don't know, it irks me. I was I was doubly irked by the fact that not only did they bring her back, not only did they have that just frankly insulting explanation for you know how they brought her back and everything but this story softened aunt may you know much much later after she's brought back and everything we would see a different side of may for a time like when peter was with the avengers um, you know, before the the one more day thing and all that, Aunt May softened as a character. They they seem to de-age her a bit. They seem to make her a lot more Ma Kent like. I always thought. I um, really liked that. Aunt yeah, May. I like that that mm-hmm. version of that character. I think we see a glimmer of that version of Aunt May in the Aunt May that's in ASM four hundred. I, I just just a a touch, you know, like a preview of that version of, of Aunt May. Cause she's softer, she's not as uh she just doesn't seem as as um I don't know, just ancient or something. You know what I mean? I mean she's clearly an old woman. She's on her deathbed, but she just doesn't seem that like 
Well, to be fair, Ditko, as wonderful as an artist as he was, kind of drew the freaking Crypt Keeper right. as, 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 as Peter's Ann. And, and <laughs> other artists would follow suit, just making her... It was This is going to sound terrible. It's the kind of woman you expect that, like, if you touched her arm, her skin would just break and crack yes. and start bleeding. And that's the one that we get when she's resurrected in Peter Parker Spider-Man number 97. I just looked it up here because I wanted to know the date. Now, the cover date on that is November 98. What what year did you say this issue was? ASM? 95. Yeah, so it was three years later. That That's the version we get. We get ancient, you know... Uh, very hard edged, you know, hard lines. You know, uh, she always reminded me of like a like a mean old school. Even though the, her character wasn't mean, although she, you know, then again, she could be sometimes. She could be stern with Peter and stuff. And then she sometimes just, she'd just be completely insane. Like when he quit grad school and she just refused to speak to him. Right. And it's like he's so he's usually so responsible. It's like, bitch, this kid was 16 years old when your husband died and not only managed to graduate high school with honors, <laughs> but supported your broke ass. <laughs> That's really why I hate Aunt May, is, is, is what Tom DeFalco did with her. I mean, if but they that wanted... issue cracks me up when she's yelling at him. I, I don't know, because it just seems so ridiculous that it makes me laugh. And then that's when she was dating the uh, guy in the wheelchair, Nathan. Yeah, and then he became an asshole. Yeah, she <laughs> sicks him on it, <laughs> on Peter. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I wouldn't have minded so much if they had brought, you know, if they just had to bring her back, if it just really had to happen, which I just question the necessity of bringing back Aunt May, especially after this story, you know? But if you just can't resist, if you just have to bring her back, then then make it epic. Don't make it stupid like the way that, that it was done. You know, there was a, a, a story where uh, Dr. Doom, you know, for years he was trying to rescue his mother from hell. You know, do that kind of a story. You know, where Spider-Man has to recruit you know, fellow heroes to charge into heaven or hell to to reclaim Aunt May's soul or some shit like that. You know, I, I you know, it might not be the best thing in the world, but it's got to be better than what we got. Because I think they thought that they were doing a good story. I really do, because I think they thought that the people were going to get to that cliffhanger ending where Spider-Man looks up and he's like, no, not not you. And for me personally, it completely fell flat because it was a like, oh, Christ, not you. <laughs> <laughs> and I still feel that way. It was like we weren't even getting back the, the Aunt May that, that went out in ASM 400. We were getting back, you know, ancient Aunt May again. And that was like, oh, it just made me crazy. It really did. So thanks yeah. a lot, Mike. You picked the book that made us angry. No, not at all. No, he <laughs> he picked a great book because I I do I really I really like this book and uh, and in my personal Spider-Man continuity, I think it's very easy to just kind of dismiss certain other things and and bringing Aunt May back is one of those that I'm I'm able to just mentally write off. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. She she went out in a nice little 
story in ASM 400, and that was it. But one way or the other, this is still one of the best uh, Spider-Mans, in my opinion. I really like this one. I'm I'm really glad to have uh, had a chance to get it uh, get it autographed by uh, by Bagley. And that he had, you know, that it was nice to find out that he had fond memories of it too. Well, that's all I got. Sweet. We got a show. Next week, NFL Super Pro. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.